Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. Did you know that zoologists have only found five species of mammals that go through the menopause? That's four species of toothed whale, orcas, narwhals, belugas and short-finned pilot whales, plus us humans. The animal kingdom reveals a lot about female evolution, and this month Lucy Cook explores evolutionary biology through an array of animal examples, and research spanning from Darwin's time up to modern findings. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 8th of March 2022. If you'd like to get tickets to upcoming talks, head to rigb.org. And if you'd like to go deeper into this topic, you can get Lucy Cook's book, Bitch, A Revolutionary Guide to Sex, Evolution and the Female Animal. Please do leave this episode a rating and a review to let us know what you think and to help more people discover the podcast. And now over to Lucy Cook. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Well, it's just, um, it's so lovely. Thank you so much for coming out and joining me here in this extraordinary theatre where so many amazing things have happened. Um, Charles Darwin has sat in this theatre and watched lectures, amazingly. Michael Faraday came here to to debut his his theory of electromagnetism in 1831. And um, Humphrey Davy announced the existence of sodium. What did we do before we knew about sodium? Uh, And that was in 1807. And and now there's me. (laughs) And, you know, these are all sort of laudable achievements by these venerable Victorian men, but I can pretty much guarantee there's one thing that they didn't know about, and that was females. And that's what I'm here to talk to you about tonight, because um, when I was studying zoology myself um, in a theatre much like this at Oxford uh, and being taught, uh, I I felt like like a sad misfit. Um, not because I, I loved spiders or I enjoyed cutting up dead things I'd found by the side of the road or would routinely sort of um, look in, in feces to see what their owners had, had had for dinner. No, all my fellow students shared the same curious kinks. The, um, the source of my disquiet was my sex because being female meant just one thing. I was a loser. Uh, and the reason I know I was a loser was because my tutor told me so. <laughs> it was very kind of him. He'd written a whole book called The Selfish Gene, which detailed how I was, in fact, a loser. Um, here you can see the female is exploited, and the fundamental evolutionary basis for the exploitation is the fact that eggs are larger than sperms. Female exploitation begins here. So, yeah. According to zoological law, we egg makers had been betrayed by our... ...bulky gametes by by investing our genetic legacy in a few nutrient-rich ova instead of millions of mobile sperm. Our forebears had pulled the short straw in the primeval lottery of life. We were doomed to pay second fiddle to the sperm shooters for all eternity. Um, A feminine footnote to the macho main event. 
Um, and I was taught that this apparently trivial disparity in our sex cells laid cast iron foundations for sexual inequality. Males led swashbuckling lives of thrusting agency. They shagged around indiscriminately, propelled by a biological need to spread their seed far and wide. They were competitive and dominant, um, whereas females... Um, we just sort of meekly followed and, and were chase and, and passive. And, you know, we, we were allowed to hop on the, the bus of change as long as we promised to keep nice and quiet. We, we were, we basically, we, we, females are mothers, but as such, we were deemed all alike. We had zero competitive edge and sex was a duty rather than a drive. Um, so as an egg-making student of, uh, of evolution, I couldn't really see my reflection in this 1950s sitcom of, of sex roles, and I found it somewhat dispiriting, to be honest. And I wondered, was I some kind of female aberration? Well, the answer, thankfully, is no. And in the last few decades, there's been a revolution in our understanding of what it means to be female. And tonight, I'm going to introduce you to some of the badass females, both, both human and animal, that have redefined what it means to be female. So to sort of wind back and work out how we ended up in this pickle, we need to go back to meet this fella. This is Charles Darwin, who's one of my heroes. Um, and, you know, his theory of evolution by natural selection is one of the greatest theories in, in all of science. Um, but Darwin knew that this, this, the, uh, the theory of evolution by natural selection didn't actually explain everything that we saw in nature. And after he published On the Origin of the Species, there were certain things that troubled him. So here you can see in a letter that he wrote to Asa Gray, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail whenever I gaze at it makes me sick. Poor Darwin. So, <laughs> you know, it could be really, uh, really troublesome that. But anyway, so he, he, was, he, was, he was made sick by the sight of a, a, a peacock's tail. And that's because of it's just, it's gaudy flamboyance. That's the thing that really upset him because natural selection is a sort of utilitarian force. It's just about the struggle for survival. So what the hell was going on with the peacock's tail? Because it's, you know, it, it, I mean, that that's, doesn't help the peacock survive, does it? I mean, it's, you know, can't hide from anything, dragging that thing around. It can't fly. You know, what's going on? So he was, he was, he was deeply troubled by this. And, and he realised that there was another force that drove evolution. It wasn't just natural selection, the struggle for mates. There was also a quest for sex. And so he, he, he wrote a second theory, which was sexual selection. And he realised that sexual selection was driven by two things, male competition for mates and female choice. You know, here we have a classic example here. We've got elephant seals. These are uh, ferocious males that are duking it out. And here are the words of Darwin. The males of almost all animals have stronger passions than the females. Hence, it is the males that fight together and sedulously display their charms before the females. The female, on the other hand, with the rarest of exceptions, is less eager than the male. She generally requires to be courted. She is coy. So he, he, females very much were, were, were in, the, uh, in the passenger seat when it came to sexual selection. It was males that were in the driving seat. And, and Darwin sort of had this idea that, 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 that it, was, it was somehow it was to do with our sex cells. It was to do with the fact that females' sex cells are these big, 
passive eggs, whereas males had these, these mobile sperm. And so males were, were active and, and females were passive. And he, he just had a hunch that it was about that. And so he, he, females just had this sort of this passive role. And in fact, this idea goes all the way back to Aristotle, that the idea that males are active and, and females are passive. So it's actually as old as zoology itself, because Aristotle is the grandfather of, of zoology. And so that means that it's felt right to to generations of scientists. Because um, it, it sort of subscribes to this tidy dichotomy. As human beings, we love dichotomies. We love things to be one thing or the other, black or white, right or wrong. Um, but just because it's felt right doesn't mean to say that it is right. But I think that it's fair to say that Darwin didn't really know a great deal about females. If, if, if he was on mastermind, they would not have been his specialist subject. Um, he, you know, he, 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 he may have been a father of 10, but I get the feeling that he was driven by cerebral rather than carnal urges. Um, he married his, his cousin, Emma, um, and only after uh, deliberating for some time as to how he should do that. And, and unfortunately, his list of whether he should marry or not marry Emma, which was scribbled in a journal, um, has been preserved forever. And, um, <laughs> and, it, and it makes for an awkward read for Darwin, if I'm honest. You know, um, So is, as he thrashed out his inner connubial turmoil, his chief concerns were that he would miss out on conversations of clever men at clubs. Um, and he might therefore succumb to fatness and idleness. Um, however, on the plus side, he would have someone to take care of the house and a nice soft wife on the sofa was better than a dog anyhow. <laughs> so, so Darwin bravely took the plunge. And, but, you know, Darwin, of course, was a Victorian man. And, you know, this wasn't exactly an enlightened time for, 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 for women uh, when it came to women. So males were dominant and females were second-class citizens. And, in fact, here at the Royal Institution, there's a, there's a book on animal husbandry, apparently, which recommends that you treat your animals like your wife. So... I tried to get my hands on it before I got, but I got here because I wanted to read out some bits, but it's gone missing. I don't know whether anybody's taken it home and is treating the wife accordingly. But anyway, it's not available for me to share with you tonight. We can only imagine what delights are in there. Um, but um, Darwin's th you know, theory of, of sexual selection attempted to actually explain sex differences in humans as well. So he says he concludes that man has ultimately become superior to woman. So, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that, that um, his theory of, of, um, of, of sexual selection was, was incubated in misogyny. And it's no surprise, really, that the female animal came out marginalised and misunderstood like a Victorian housewife. The unfortunate part of this is because Darwin said it, it meant that all the scientists that followed in his wake suffered from confirmation bias, and they just, they just looked for evidence of the passive female prototype and then ignored anything else that didn't fit in with that paradigm. Um, and that's been going on for a very, very, very long time. So as recently as the 1980s, here's an example of it. These are, these are pinion jays. These are birds that you find in North America, and they are social bird and they, they nest in these they 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 they, um, they roost in these huge flocks and 
as a sort of a smart social bird, the, the, the um, two male ornithologists who are the world experts in pinion jays, I hope they're not here tonight. <laughs> um, uh, Russell, uh, what are their names again? John Marsloff and Russell Boulder. They, they, they realised that they must have some sort of dominance network in order to organise their society, otherwise there would be chaos at night in the tree. So they went in search of the alpha male. Dominance network, let's go and have a look for the alpha male. Uh, this took a little bit of ingenuity because it seemed to them that the, the, the male pinion jay was a committed pacifist and no matter what they did, they couldn't get them to fight with one another. They tried putting tasty treats in the trees and greasy mealworms and the kind of things that pinion jays really love, but still they couldn't get the males to fight. Um, and in the end, they had to base their dominance network on, on observations that were a little bit more mundane and, and really amounted to if one pinion jay gave another what, what was sort of, they classed as basically a dirty look. Um, <laughs> which is kind of hard if you're a bird and you've got no facial, facial muscles as well. But, you know, anyway, the birds, if they gave these dirty looks, then they'd record it down. And that one gave that one. I think that one was definitely a dirty look. You know, so they made all these like, careful observations and then tried to devise their dominance network. And of course, the strange thing is, is they did see aggressive acts um, of, of extreme violence going on between birds that would clash in flight and fall to the ground and then violently peck each other. But they didn't include those interactions in their dominance network because they happened between females and not males. Um, they recorded all the data diligently, and it's all there for us to see, but they didn't include them in the network. And of course, it's obvious that females have an instrumental role in the dominance network of, of pinion jays. It's there in the data, but they just, they just couldn't see it. You know, they, they, were, they were blind to it, and it just goes to show how good scientists can suffer from bad biases. And there's no conspiracy here. It, it's just blinkered science. And the first time that I encountered something that I didn't understand was about 10 years ago. Um, I was in the Serengeti, and, uh, and I, I accidentally stole a lion's girlfriend, actually. Um, so I was doing this, um, I, was, I, was, I was involved with a, 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 a BBC show, and we were, we were doing something about lion communication, and it involved... I was with this lion uh, scientist, uh, Dr. Seifert, and he was doing a playback experiment where you basically you get a recording of a male lion and you play it in another lion's territory and wait and see what happens. I mean, it sort of <laughs> struck me as, as kind of foolhardy and, and, and a little bit dangerous, a bit like sort of standing outside a pub shouting, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. <laughs> but anyway, right, right. And then, but then, you know, we're standing in the Land Rover and we're playing this out, a little sort of tinny MP3 player, and, um, and I thought, well, this will never work, you know. It's just like a sort of a, a little recording. And, and out came the sound of a lion's roar, which, for those of you that haven't heard it, is nothing like an MGM lion's roar. I don't know how they got that noise out of a lion for the MGM thing, but they don't sound like that. They sort of make this kind of low, rumbly grunt noise, you know. Anyway, so we made our big, loud, low, rumbly grunt noise, and then, amazingly, in the distance, we could hear it, and then got louder and louder, and there was about five minutes of audio ping-pong as this noise got louder and louder, and I started to feel a bit sort of sweaty and scared, and then out of the gloom came three lions, two males and a female, 
and the males sort of padded up and padded around the, 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 the Land Rover. But of course, when they didn't find something that looked or smelt like a, a, a male line, they, they just buggered off. The female, on the other hand, <laughs> lay down in front of the, 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 the Land Rover with her legs open <laughs> and just was just like pinned us to the spot for two hours. I was just, we were trapped against this tree. We couldn't move. And I was like, what's going on? And Dr. Seaford said, oh, she wants to mate with us. And I was like, but she's got what appears to be two boyfriends already. Like, you know, what's going on? She's going, oh no, the female lion, she will mate up to a hundred times during her fertile period with multiple males. I was like, oh my God, how exhausting. But that was, you know, that, and, but we, we now know, like, and, and I was amazed because I, I didn't know anything about this, you know, but, and, but and it's, uh, now recently we, we now understand that female lions do this because male lions, lions practice infanticide. So if the females mate with all the, all the males, then that means that they, um, they confuse the paternity and, and the males are less likely to, to kill their cubs. And so they're, they're really just being sort of, you know, assiduously maternal. And we know this um, because of this woman, Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy. She's the person who's, who's enlightened us on, on this behaviour. She's an amazing, she, she's basically the first scientist to sort of stand up and challenge this, this idea that, that, that females are, are coy and, and chaste and passive. She, uh, when I was researching my book, she was, you know, her name comes up a lot and I, I, I reached out to her and, and, um, and said, I oh, know I'd love to come and, and, and interview you. And, and, and she was like, yeah, sure, come, come, come visit. I'm, 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 you know, come visit me in my walnut farm and you may well be interested in meeting my other house guests. It's Jean Altman and Mary Jane West Eberhard. And I was like, oh my God, they're like, they're like the rabble rousing matriarchs of modern Darwinism. And these women have, 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 have produced an enormous amount of work and completely redefined what we understand about female animals. So I was understandably a little bit nervous about going to meet them. I hadn't, you know, it's very early on in my research and, and I, I, I turned up and um, they literally couldn't have been sweeter. Uh, they, <laughs> Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy baked me a pie. I'd they got a copy of my previous book, which they'd listened to as a group on audio the night before. <laughs> and then they were like, oh, we really like the, the stuff about vultures. And we know you like vultures, so we baked you this pie. And they put vultures on the top and everything. It was just like, just incredibly sweet and just totally unexpected because, um, you know, high-level academics can be, you know, pretty, you know, intimidating characters. And if you don't know the obscure paper about worms that they wrote in 1973 and show deference to it, then, you know, you're in trouble. So they, they couldn't have been more different. They were very welcoming. Um, and, they, you know, collectively, they've, they've done some incredible work. And they together, they, 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 they meet once a year, and together with this woman, Patricia Goati, um, and they call themselves the Broads. And... Uh, they, they are, they, they're fe or, or they are, by their own admission, feminist Darwinists. So um, they, they don't, they, they don't say Darwin was all wrong. You know, he was a genius. But it's just that, you know, because male competition and female choice do drive sexual selection. But it's just they're just that's not the whole story. Um, Darwin was really looking at, at life through a Victorian pinhole camera, and, and thanks to these women, we now see, you know, more of the Technicolor um, story of life, and, it, and it's all the more fascinating for it. 
Now, that's Patty. That's how I know Patty because we spoke a lot on Skype during lockdown. Um, and she's, uh, she's, she lives in Georgia and she's an, she's, an, she's an extraordinary scientist who's done some amazing work to try and um, wash the sexist stain out of zoology. Um, she was the first person to establish that a single clutch of eggs has multiple fathers often in song, songbirds. She, um, her study subject was the eastern bluebird from zippity doo -dah. So she, she, um, she, did, she, she took um, uh, DNA, she did DNA paternity testing on, on the eggs and worked out that, that a single clutch, lots, lots, uh, several different fathers. And, you know, it was never really going to go down well basically, you know, zippity-doo-dah, it's like sort of all-American um, wholesome uh, character, and she's basically saying that she's a Jezebel. But um, she was actually shocked at how poorly her information, uh, you know, this her revelation was received, because when she went to an uh, ornithological conference in the States to announce her findings, the male ornithological establishment just said to her, well, obviously the females are being raped, that's what's going on, you know. And she's like, well, I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, it's impossible for, for female songbirds to be raped because they don't, males don't have a penis. They both, the, the, and it's like really precarious. They, both, 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 both birds only have a cloaca and the male has to balance precariously on the female's back and then they have to sort of briefly line up their cloacas and, and do what's known as a cloacal kiss. And to do all that without the female's consent is like really hard. <laughs> but they were like, no, they're being raped. So then it took another female ornithologist who then was like, okay, right, well, I'm sticking um, radio trackers on the back of birds then, and we're going to track them and see where they go then, shall we? And it actually took several scientists doing an experiment like that for it finally to be accepted that the females were actually soliciting sex from their neighbours and... and and actually, it was, it was a strategy of theirs to mate with multiple males. And, you know, the reason to, to Patricia Goati is clear. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you mate with multiple males, you're increasing the, the genetic diversity of your offspring and, and, and giving them a better chance. It means, basically, mating with multiple males means healthier offspring. Um, and that's not to say that it's universal, but we now know with songbirds, only 7% of songbirds are actually truly monogamous. So there's a big difference between social monogamy and sexual monogamy if you're a songbird. So most songbirds do social monogamy really diligently and they'll make a nest together and they'll feed the chicks and all that, but both parties are, are, are having sex with multiple um, partners. Uh, so they're not sexually monogamous. But the thing is, is this... This idea that females are, are passive and chaste and, and males are, are wired for promiscuity has been sort of supported by this very famous experiment in the 1940s involving fruit flies. So this was, experiment was done by a guy called Angus John Bateman in the 1940s. He was actually a botanist. He only ever did one experiment, that, that, and then he went back to plants afterwards. But anyway, he did this experiment. That he wanted to prove Darwin's sexual stereotypes because Darwin, as I said, had this hunch that it was to do with um, eggs being um, big and sedentary and and males having loads of cheap sperm and, and so that and so that they were they were wired for promiscuity and and he, he wanted to prove these these stereotypes so he he got all these different types of mutant fruit fly and you know they had like horrible names like you know hairy head and no eyes and you know 
things like that. Anyway, so if you braid hairy head and no eyes, then you know these are the basic sort of Mendelian genetics. You'll be able to work out who's who's mated with who. So you did 64 of these experiments. It was a sort of like a love island for fruit for mutant Drosophila, um, and um, and and he did his experiment, and then he and then he did pulled his results, and he made this graph which if you're a zoology or an, if you've studied evolutionary biology, you'll be very familiar with this graph because it basically exists in every single textbook still, I think. Um, and this graph basically proves that males have everything to gain from mating with lots of females and females have nothing to gain. So it plots number of matings along the bottom and along the side there's fitness. Fitness actually means number of offspring. The male line thrusts skyward and the female just sort of tails off limply. She's got absolutely nothing to gain from mating with multiple males, whereas the male does. And, and, and as I said, Bateman felt that this was, you know, this was all to do down to the size of, of sex cells. Um, and even though this experiment was only done on fruit flies, he still, and he was, a, he was a botanist, he still felt confident that he could extrapolate his results across the entire animal kingdom, including humans. Punchy, but anyway, that's what he thought. And goodness knows it was swallowed up hook, line and sinker. And so that graph is, is it, Bateman's paper, I think, is the most cited paper in the whole of sexual selection. And, and that, that graph is, is reproduced everywhere. Now, given the fact that, you know, her experience with the songbirds and the eggs, um, and the fact that it didn't really seem like this was true, Patricia Goati thought, well, I better replicate this experiment then. So she actually went to the effort of getting all exactly the same kind of mutant flies. <laughs> she bred them, found them, and repeated all 64 fly experiments. She got hold of Bateman's original lab notes to, to decipher his actual original data. And she spent 10 years poring over his uh, experiment um, with a sort of forensic scalpel, taking it apart and, and trying to, to work out his methodology and his data. And she, she says that his, his methodology was flawed and his results were skewed. Um, and, I, you know, for, for any number of reasons, I, I won't go into them all now, but, um, you know, sort of some, along, including the fact that if you breed two animals with with deleterious mutations like no eyes and, and, um, <laughs> and a pinhead that some of the offspring might not survive and that might skew the results. And so there are all sorts of reasons why, why Bateman's um, um, foundational study uh, is, is flawed. Um, so, but it's still reproduced in every textbook and, and we can't seem to let go of it. And, and Patty's just sort of exasperated by all this. And what's even more sort of exasperating, really, is the fact that it persists. And actually, Jenny, who's here tonight, who's my was a researcher who helped me out with the book, she, when she spoke to um, a very senior professor at Oxford to see whether Patty's papers are taught alongside, just as a critical appraisal of Bateman's seminal study, um, she was told that they're not because they're considered very political perspectives. Yeah, so her science is ideological, so you can't include it, whereas Darwin's wasn't. This doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? Anyway, so one of the things that's sort of most pernicious about this idea of, 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 of Bateman's gradient, as it's called, is that males are much more variable than females. So 
you have your stag here and he's got his harem. And if you're the lucky stag that shags the harem, then you're going to sire lots of babies. But if you fight the stag and you lose and you don't shag anyone, you don't have any babies. And so that sort of, that disparity, that variation is the thing that drives sexual selection. And because females have nothing to gain from mating with lots of males, there's basically no variation. So effectively, females are barred from the evolutionary party on account of being too boring. Um, so, and obviously that's ridiculous. As these two will tell you, this slightly unflattering photo, um, but you can see that those are actually females um, that are fighting. They're topi antelope, that's on the Serengeti. And um, these females are, are actually fighting over, over the top topi's sperm. Because despite the fact that Richard Dawkins said, there's no such thing as excess for a male, <laughs> as in there's unlimited amounts of sperm, it, it's not true. <laughs> um, you know, the male, the male topi uh, that, that's, the, that's the most uh, desired actually does run out, and then females start massively fighting. In fact, some females will actually start barging into other females in the act of mating to try and get to the top man, um, and it gets all pretty ugly. Um, and then there are other males that, that can't, can't, you know, can't get laid at all. And actually, in the case of the topi, they actually use these tactics where they'll, they'll do this. Um, that what, what happens with the, with the topi, the females only come into heat for 24 hours and the males all gather in one place and then they, they make these little sort of um, territories using their own dung and then they stand in their territories and then the females sort of shop around and come and check out the guys in their little dung piles and, um, and the, the females all want the guys in the middle they, they like the guys who are in the centre of the, of the lek it's called um, but um, so the guys, the, the topi that are on the outside, they resort to um, fake news alerts <laughs> in order to try and get the females to linger on their territory. So they make this sort of snorting sound as if there's a lion around and then the females will hang about and then the females end up mating with sort of four to ten males. So they often, you know, they'll, 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 they'll sleep with the, they'll, they'll shag the males in, um, despite the fact that they're, they're lying. Um, <laughs> but um, but it, you see, this is that kind of scene that Darwin never dreamt of you know these are sort of females you know scrapping over sex like it's Saturday night on Geordie Shore but you know that that's what's going on but they're not the most competitive females in the animal kingdom no a candidate probably for the biggest bitch in the animal kingdom is this it's not me um <laughs> it's um it's the these are these are naked mole rats um and they are absolutely extraordinary creatures they normally live underground in in east in east africa but i met them in a very hot cupboard in east london in fact um chris Falks, who's here tonight um he uh he's got a colony there or several colonies in fact um they're extraordinary looking creatures and chris will be the first to say that they look basically like a penis with teeth which is unusual for such a, a dominant female really um they're, they're the only mammal that we know of that lives in a society that's basically like social insects so like like ants or bees um, and there's a single dominant queen and she's the only one who reproduces um, she'll have two or three mates and then all the other all the other members of the colony are they have their reproduction, um, they're, they're, they, they're suppressed, reproductively suppressed. They never actually go through puberty. And the, the queen maintains this sort of, um, sort of sexual suppression by constant low-grade bullying. So 
She's just on this sort of relentless royal tour of the, of the colony where she goes around just shoving her subjects and, um, and, or biting them. And um, anyway, they're extraordinary creatures. Um, amazingly, the female... She sort of apparently is immune to aging and um, they live like, you know, for an animal that size, you should really, they should really only live for like, you know, two or three years, but she can live for like 30, 30 years. And yeah, amazing looking things. And, you know, so one female had more than 900 pups in 24 documented years because all their energy goes into, into reproducing and the, whole, the rest of the colony are just supporting her royal reproductiveness like she's a termite or something, you know. So um, I thoroughly recommend if Chris will ever let you in his hot cupboards and introduce you to his wrinkly pink tyrant, I really, I can really recommend it. Um, but what happens is, um, so she's like this sort of despotic, unpleasant queen. And um, when, when, if she becomes weak or, or then, 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 there's like a moment where the other females can kind of try and 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 uh, and and depose her, and so they all start fighting, and apparently all the tubes fill her with blood, and and it all gets very Game of Thrones because they've got everything to fight for, uh, because you know 99.9% of the colony will never reproduce, so you know that's a she's pretty pretty fearsome uh, female, quite a lot of variation there. Um, but of course, not, not all female leaders are, are quite so unpleasant. <laughs> um, orcas, uh, I, I, I travelled to Seattle to, um, there's a, a, a pod of orcas there that have been studied for 40 or 50 years. Um, and they're, 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 their society was originally thought of as being um, male dominant. It was thought that, the, that it, was, it was a harem and that the male was in charge. It turns out, it's not a male in charge. It's a female that's... Uh, and it's not just a female that's in charge. It's the post-menopausal grannies that are the leaders of the orca community, um, which was a story that, that I particularly enjoyed to hear um, because the female orcas... Because so, menopause is really unusual in the animal kingdom. Basically, natural selection takes a pretty dim view of a loss of fertility, and if you stop reproducing, you die. Um, and, and, and there were all, all these sort of theories about why why, why human females went through menopause. We're like some sort of menopausal freak. And, and there were various theories by, by one, one by, by, a, by a male scientist uh, that was that, that basically, we'd, because thanks to modern medicine, we'd outlived our ovaries and we should just really be shuffling off once they curled up and died in our 40s. And, you know, any extra time we got was, was, was really sort of um, only propped up by modern medicine. That's kind of dispiriting sort of theory, that one. There was another one that was about how, um, about how you know, it was just because um, male preference for, for, for young females was, was basically causing our hopes and dreams, along with our ovaries, to shrivel up and die. Um, uh, anyway, there was, but then there was one theory by, this, uh, by, by, a, by a woman who'd actually done some research and um, gone and spent some time with some hunter-gatherer communities and, and came up with this grand, grandmother hypothesis, which is that the older females um, are repositories for wisdom and, 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 and they, you know, by, by investing in, by stopping reproducing and investing in their, in their, in their children rather than having more babies, then they, they actually, yeah, that then the whole family does much better. And, and, um, and, 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 and interestingly, the orcas supported this, this theory, which was great because the orcas, 
Hawkers supported the grandma theory as opposed to what I call the Hugh Hefner hypothesis, which was these other sort of dis dispiriting ideas. And what's also fantastic about the, 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 uh, the Orcas, so the females are, are the leaders, and they're also, all the young males like to have their first sexual experiences with these postmenopausal matriarchs. So they are the new Orcas and the new Cougars, so, um, which I think also is very interesting, isn't it? Um, so uh, anyway, they, they, they live in these amazing societies. They're hugely intelligent. Orcas have got a seven-kilo brain, and... Um, they're incredibly intelligent. They've actually got a lobe in their brain that we don't have. They, the, it's the paralimbic lobe, and it's, it sits in the area next to where um, they process empathy and, and communication. So they, 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 they have this sort of empathetic, communicative side that is something that we can't really understand. And they're incredibly cohesive um, socially. And, you know, there was a, there was in the, in Seattle, there was a, uh, one of the pods had a, an individual that had scoliosis, the um, uh, bent spine, and 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 they were cared, for, they were caring for that animal. They were, you know, they'd catch fish and they'd share it, and you know, it just seemed like a sort of uh, a really, a really um, uh, very sort of uh, beautiful society that they have, very um, cohesive, socially cohesive. Um, but what about primates? So um, the idea, I suppose, is, is, is that patriarchy is kind of burnt into primate DNA. And certainly um, Lionel Tiger thought so. He wrote, primate females seem biologically unprogrammed to dom dominate political systems. Um, and that was in his uh, essay, The Possible Biological Origins of Sexual Discrimination. Thanks, Lionel. Um, so... Um, yeah, so, you know, he, he thought that it, the idea was that the female primates were all just too busy mothering to, um, to have any, 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 any brains for, or any time for, for political manoeuvring. Of course, it's completely not understanding what a massive political game is. If, for example, you're a female baboon, um, you know, you, you, it's, it's all about politics, actually. Being a good mother is all about politics because you're born into a very strict class system. And, you know, females who are in the higher echelons get the first dibs of, of food and, 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 and a kind of like high-class protection racket for them and their infants, whereas the lower-class um, baboons don't, don't have any of that and they, they really suffer a lot of stress and their reproductive output is much lower. But they can ascend. Gene Altman found this out. In fact, um, they they they're able if they play a deaf political game and make strategic friendships with males and females, then they're able their 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 offspring are able to do much better. So it's all about politics. But yet we think of the patriarchy as being as being the norm. So. We all know this. A lot of you all know this character. This is this is in the movie Madagascar, and this is King Julian, who was the the king of Madagascar. Um, uh, he's a ring-tailed lemur. Ring-tailed lemurs are our um, our most ancestral primate cousins. Um, but if you go to Madagascar, which I did in search of King Julian, he's he's nowhere to be found because actually ring-tailed lemurs are female dominant. So this is, this is some ringtail females uh, lemurs in the morning. They like to start the day with a bit of sunbathing. <laughs> bit of sunbathing there, yeah, soaking up the rays, sunbathing like a boss. 
Yeah, uh, but I mean, if any male was to try and take that female's sunbathing spot, she'd whack him on the head. If he tried to take her food, she'd whack him on the head. Um, the females are really aggressive and the males are, are actually sort of frightened of the females. They're, they're the same size, they're monomorphic, but the females rule with an iron fist. And they do all the territorial work and, you know, all this, yeah, so they, they do all the scent marking and, and territorial patrol, um, you know, which is sort of traditionally thought of as, as sort of classic kind of male behaviours. And their bodies are also often described as masculinised. Um, they have what's described as a pseudo-penis, and they also have a pseudo-scrotum, and that's because they are high, in the womb, they're exposed to an enormous amount of testosterone, and so they, which wires them for aggressive dominance in later life. So, you know, they are, they, they, their, their bodies and their behavior defy kind of traditional binary stereotypes. Um, but these characteristics are shared by other of the, the sort of the prosimians, the, 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 the ancestral primates like bush babies. And it's been, there's two separate papers that have proposed that actually um, this kind of female dominance was probably the ancestral state of all primates. So that was the origins that they were sort of badass, um, aggressive females were the, uh, were the earliest of primates. And of course, in the meantime, in the intervening years, there's all sorts of diversity that, that's occurred. And so you have, you know, systems like um, the cotton top tamarind, they're cooperative breeders, they're female dominant, and you've got the Hamadrius baboon, they're terrifying. I tell you what, if you get reincarnated, you absolutely do not want to be Hamadrius female. Their society is horrific. Um, the males kidnap prepubescent females and amass a harem and bully them and you know, it, they're just, it's a horrible situation. Um, um, but then our monkeys, very sweet, monogamous and co-dominant. So you have all these things. And so it's got nothing to do with the size of sex cells, like whether they've got eggs or sperm. It's just, it's about, it's about the environment. That's what sort of drives different sex roles. But when it comes to our closest, our ancestry, of course, which we're all preoccupied with looking in the animal kingdom and seeing our reflection, the reflection that we see, and, you know, goodness knows at the moment, it really feels like it, doesn't it, is this. It's this sort of patriarchal dominant system of these, you know, these are chimpanzees, obviously, and chimpanzees, the, um, they are male dominant, and um, and the males and, and and you know the you know the quite a sort of aggressive warlike um, society where the um, what happens is the females disperse. So you know in in mammals normally you get either the male or the female will disperse. It sort of prevents it naturally prevents inbreeding. So in in lots of um, primates like the baboons, the, the, the females tend to stay. So they form a very stable nucleus to the group naturally have a lot of leadership power. But, um, and the males disperse. And in the case of, of chimpanzees, it's the females that disperse. So the males have a lot of power and that they form these very strong bonds with each other. And the females, you know, they, they end up, you know, they, they join groups and they don't have a lot of, of power because, you know, when the females connect, they, they're sort of competitive with each other and so they, they don't have a lot of power. And, and, you know, for example, feeding time um, in, in the wild with chimpanzees, the males will eat first and, and the females are, are left out sort of cowering and will only come and eat once the males have. So it, it is 
a patriarchal system. And that was used as a model for, for humanity and this idea that that's where we've come from and, and, and you know, that's what we're, our destiny is. And that's pretty depressing. Um, but is it true? Well, no, maybe not. Because actually, in the last um, decade or so, we've realised that there is, um, we have another equally close, close, closely related ape relative, and that's the bonobo. So it's the pygmy chimpanzee. And we share the same amount of DNA as we do with the, chimpa uh, the, the chimpanzee as we do with the bonobo. And they have a radically different society. So this is Loretta. I met her at San Diego Zoo, and she helped us understand how um, bonobo society works because Amy Parrish, who's the scientist who studied bonobos um, at San Diego Zoo, um, she's, she's followed um, Loretta for, for 30 years because Loretta is she's the matriarch of, of, of the bonobos there. So they're female dominant. And what's interesting about this is that it's, it's, it's in, in the same way as chimpanzees, the females, um, the, the, the females uh, migrate out of the group. So the, the, the females, they, they've, they form this incredibly strong sisterhood. And it's through this sisterhood of unrelated females. That's what's unusual about it. So it's a sisterhood of unrelated females. They've managed to dominate the males, even though the males are actually bigger than them. So, and the way that they've managed to do that is by having sex with each other. So the females, they do something that's described as GG rubbing. And um, it's a very particular kind of uh, sex. And they are basically morphologically adapted to get the most pleasure from that form of sex. So it is something that uh, they've definitely evolved to do and is a very important part of their society because it, it basically stops the females from being aggressive with one another and they, they form these alliances. So when a new female arrives in the group, she'll go up to the matriarch and, you know, they'll, they'll do some GG and they'll... <laughs> They'll decide they like each other and, uh, and then everything will all be nice and, and dandy, you know. And so basically they, the, 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 the bonobos have, uh, have, have evolved to uh, overthrow the patriarchy through ecstatic same-sex frottage. So, um, you know, there's some lessons there for us, aren't there, I think. Um, but seriously, they're peaceful society you know, it, 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 it could equally be a model for, for human ancestry. There's no reason why our ancestors weren't more bonobo or they weren't more than they were chimpanzee. You know, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, we could argue about, you know, forever, and, and anthropologists probably will. Um, but I think what's sort of heartening about that story is, is the idea, of this sort of flexibility. It's just that we're not really wired into one particular destiny, um, but, and, and also the, 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 the power of allegiance. Um, and, 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 yeah, we're not, we're not just, you know, we're not just wired to and stuck with patriarchal dominance. Um, What's interesting about the bonobos, of course, is that um, they're actually called the make love, not war hippie ape. They, they, they don't, the females aren't just the only ones who are having sex with each other. They're all having sex with each other. The males are having sex with each other. The males and females are having sex for pleasure. It's not just for procreation. And this is really interesting because for a long time, um, it was this sort of very kind of Catholic idea that, that sex was only for reproduction. And so... 
there was, uh, you know, all bonobos are, are basically bisexual. Um, and you realize that, you know, in terms of bias, you know, we, we, you know from hangover from the Victorian era is sexist bias, but the other form of bias that, that many zoologists have had is, is heteronormative bias, is that we've looked at the animal kingdom and we've expected to see males and females in, 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 in partnerships with each other, but it, that isn't always the case. So here's an example of that that I encountered in Hawaii. This is a, a female, uh, Laysan albatross, and, um, and she's been in a partnership, uh, a loving partnership for 17 years and raised nine chicks, not with another male, but with a female albatross. So um, this particular colony, um, they have been studied for over 50 years and there was this sort of curious thing that there was always a bunch of nests that had two eggs in them. And, you know, this is sort of it's impossible for, I mean, for a, an albatross to lay an egg. It's a huge energetic um, drain. And so they, they just, a single female albatross can't lay two eggs. So they were just like, well, where, where are these two eggs coming from? And there's all these sort of ludicrous excuses as to why there would be two eggs in a nest. And, um, and eventually, um, Lindsay Young, who's the scientist who showed me around, thought, well, I mean, has anybody checked? I mean, they look exactly the same. Anybody checked to see that they're not two females that are on the nest, you know? And uh, so she checked, and she did um, DNA feather tests, and she discovered that a third of the colony were female-female couples. And she thought... She was so amazed by her results, she just thought, she actually did the lab work three separate times because she couldn't believe she got it right. She just thought, you know, this is an extraordinary result. Actually, what's going on is, is that um, it turns out that with the, the, the colony, and this colony in Hawaii, <clears throat> it's a new colony, it's being forged. And so <clears throat> it turns out the females tend to be the pioneers when it comes to albatross and the males tend to stay in their, in their birthplace. So the females are striking out to pastures new and there's more females around than they are males. And so the females are using other albatross husbands as sperm donors and then shacking up with another female to raise the chicks. And, they have, and they're in loving relationships. They're doing, Lindsay says they do everything exactly the same as, 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 a, as, a, as a male and female couple. They groom and they have all the sort of head bobbing and the courtship and, and all the same. They're very lovey-dovey um, albatross because it's a huge commitment. They, you know, it takes them six months to raise a chick. You absolutely can't do it by yourself if you're an albatross. So it takes a lot of communication and coordination for an albatross pair to do that. And yeah, and this couple been together 17 years. You know, they've nine nine kids and three grandchildren. They're amongst the most successful in the colony. So, you know, so it's an amazing story, and I think just shows you the flexibility in nature of of of, of sex roles and sexuality, in fact. And and actually, the more that we're finding out <clears throat> is 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 the more we're discovering about sex behaviors and sexuality, the more plastic we're finding it is in the animal kingdom. Right, it's all, for a long time, it was assumed that male and female brains were radically different. Male brains are from Mars and, and females are from Venus. And, 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 you know, there was this sort of, you know, wash of testosterone that, you know, made male brains very different from females. Well, you know, they've been looking for these differences for like 40 years. People can't find them. There are small differences to do with, you know, the, the coordination of, of release of particular sex cells and, and reproductive um, output, but, but basically brains are the same. 
So um, it's just a, a very recent discovery, which I think is really amazing, really um, turns this sort of myth of maternal instinct on its head, which is that... Um, that we found that there's a switch for nurturing in, in the brain of, of, of frogs. And because male frogs are, are really good, they're a candidate for nature's best dad, actually. Male frogs are, are really good dads. But, you know, females also do parenting. That's actually, it could be a male or a female with the tadpoles on its back there. And that there's actually, there's this, there's this switch. And it's exactly the same in males and females. <clears throat> and they found that now in mice as well. And Catherine Dulac won this huge prize, this Harvard scientist who found this, this switch in the mouse, mouse brain, which is the same as the frog switch. Um, and, and so... Uh, and she, she says that, th that it's likely to be the same in humans. So there's a, they don't know what triggers it, but, the, but the, basically the, the neuronal architecture for, for nurturing is exactly the same in males and females. Um, and then next to that we have whiptail lizards here. So whiptail lizards are incredible because they're an all-female species. There are no males in existence. And the females... Um, reproduced by cloning, so they just lay an egg, just lay a, lay a you know, perfect replica of themselves. But they still go through the effort of courtship dances and, and mating rituals. And then they, they, the, 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 the partners will alternate between playing the male role and the female role in different months. So that suggests that their brains are wired for both behaviours. And um, so, but nowhere is this sort of bisexual potential more evident than in the anemone fish. So um, these are, uh, you know, you probably recognize them from Finding Nemo. Um, these are, uh, they, they live on coral reefs and, and, and there are a species which is, the female is dominant and she's the big fish there. But if you take the female out of that, they're generally, they'll live in an anemone, there'll be a big female and there'll be her partner, a male, and then there'll be a couple of adolescent males in the anemone as well. But if you take the big female out, then the male transitions into being female and then um, starts, and then one of the, the juvenile males will, will, will um, mature and, 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 and start mating with the new female. Um, which means that if it was a biologically accurate version of Finding Nemo, would be a very different film, because in Finding Nemo, Nemo lost his mum, and then he went on a big journey with his dad, um, and I think they, you know, happy ever after, but actually, obviously, his dad would have, would have, would have turned into his mum and, and started having sex with him. <laughs> different film, different film. But why not, you know? Anyway, so, but what's interesting about the anemone fish for scientists is, is, is that, you know, lots of, lots of um, hermaphrodite fish change from being female to male, but in this case, it's changing male to female. And, of course, the idea of female brains, the development of female brains was also considered to be a passive process that just happened in the absence of testosterone. And amazingly, nothing was known about it. So there's this amazing scientist in, in, um, in the States, um, Justin Rhodes, who's been studying this and He's got like a, an entire lab full of an enemy fish. And, um, and, uh, and it's fantastic. And he's, so he's found out that basically what happens is that with the anemone fish, that um, if you take the female out, the male um, that's, that's, that, that's going to become female immediately, almost immediately starts behaving like a female and is recognised as female by the other fish. But the gonads remain male and can take up to a year before they, they turn into ovaries. Um, 
And so I said to me, she showed me one of these fish that was, was in the middle of the change. And I said to him, I said, so what, what sex is that fish? And he's like, good question. What sex is that fish? You know, because, you know, science, biology would tell you, oh, it's, 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 a, it's a male because it's got, it's got male gonads. But it isn't a male, is it? Look, because it's, it's behaving like a female and all the, other, all the other fish are treating it like it's a female. So it kind of makes a, you know, it, it challenges our, our, our simplistic binary view of sex. And, uh, and I thought this was, this was really, really fascinating. And and does make you think about, you know, just the complexities of sex. And, you know, to sort of, to sort of wrap all this up, really, you know, I think that Darwin really drove a wedge between the sexes by focusing on differences. You know, that's what he was really, really interested in. And I think the truth is, is that males and females are really, they're more alike than they are different. You know, we've got the same genes, with the same hormones, the same brains, the same bodies. And, you know, the time has come to, to just to sort of get rid of these sort of binary expectations because if we continue to sort of believe in these antiquated sex differences, all that really does is fuel unrealistic expectations of males and females and promote sexual inequality in all animals, including us. That's what I think. There we go. Uh, absolutely fantastic talk. Really, really, really interesting stuff. Um, I think you're so right, like, this the potential. There's so much amazing animal behaviour and just by slightly changing our viewpoint, you just... There's so much more amazing stuff happening to discover and all of this amazing research that's coming out now, all it's doing is just showing us all this amazing stuff in the natural world. Um, really, really fascinating talk. We've got plenty of time for questions. Um, brilliant. Yeah, we'll start on the frontier. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so how would you explain a society where both male and female are the alpha dominant couple? That's, it is just what it is. There's nothing to explain. It's just, you know, there's just all different types of ways that, you know, it's just a different way of doing it, you know. And, yeah, as you say, it's, it, that's how wolves, um, quite a few uh, canids, I think, are uh, co-dominant. But, um, yeah, it just, it just is what it is, you know. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not described by, by the sex cells, is it? Do you know what I mean? It's got nothing to do with that. It's just, it just, it, it, basically, these, these roles are sort of determined by the environment and by chance and by all sorts of things, but it's not, sex is not a crystal ball, basically, in my opinion. You mentioned the environment. Is there, has anyone looked into if there's any kind of commonalities of whether that actually the environment would predict what kind of system would emerge there are some there, there's like a very famous one by Richard Wrangham and and that's also under is also questionable I think what's really difficult is about imposing laws yes on things you know because I think we keep doing that and saying oh we you know, I think we love to 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 make order of the chaos of the of the natural world and and I think that the Victorian era was all about trying to impose order on that chaos and putting things in boxes and saying oh this is this this box here this is male and this is female and and this is how it works and that, and I think now we're really beginning to learn to em, embrace the sort of 
the, the, the chaos and the infinite possibilities of development plasticity and, 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 and all the variation out there. And so I, I think we're sort of moving into a different place where we're probably less about trying to find ways to define everything in, in, in neat ways and just going, wow, this is, this is amazing that what's there, you know. I guess and even with then, like, it's then also like, we even have like species blending to each other in some environments. Well, so it's absolutely. Not even like yeah, so this whole idea of species being discrete entities turning out they're not. And they, they actually species breed with one another as well. So all of these lines are getting blurred in ways that, you know, completely would, 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 would make Darwin turn in his grave. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So um, just up on the top about, of the um, Lima societies, which you're saying are matriarchal. So who actually takes on more of the burden of child rearing in those societies? Um, well, the females do. I think females and I think I think females. Well, they, I mean, obviously, females are, are, are nursing. I think males do some babysitting. They, yeah, they, they have. It depends on which species you're talking about, because there's 111 different species of lemur, and um, so some of them, like the uh, Varicia, the black and white rough lemur. They're amazing because they live high up in, in the trees, in the, in the canopy, incredibly tall trees in, in Madagascar. And the females, the thing about Madagascar is it's incredibly seasonal and, and, and when you know, it's like rich or poor, there's like either no, no food and then there's just like this bounty. And so the female Varicia um, actually have litters, which is unusual for primates because they're also, they give birth to these babies that are very underdeveloped, classically like primate babies, and so they need a lot of need a lot of care before they're independent. Um, but with the Varicia females, they make these nests high up in the trees, like birds, and then they have these creches, and the females will park their babies with other with, with other. Um, other females' babies, so like two or three females will get together, and they're unrelated, which is also really interesting. And and so the, the the scientist Andrea Barden, who studies them, said that it, that those those relationships are, are, are not kin relationships; they're they're based on friendship. And then so there'll be one because they don't make any sense, they've got no predictable pattern to them, but the females will, will basically guard each other's ba babies in these nests high up in the trees while mum goes off and. And feeds, but sometimes it'll be a male that guards and not a female. So certainly in the case of that, it's 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 a very sort of novel setup. Um, but but you know the 111 species, there's all sorts of different ways that that it, that it works. But I, I that's the only one that I know about in detail. Yeah, right. okay. yeah. I was interested in your grandma theory. Um, I remember reading long ago that it was associated with the degree of parenting. You know, that if parenting was enduring and complex, like in elephants and whales, that um, that was more likely to occur. Um, so, kind of fancifully, I'm asking you, when, you know, do you think great grandma theory will, will emerge? Because, with, you know, I've got a 29 year old at home <laughs> and I'm not alone. And as parenting's getting more complex, do we need parents to teach us how to parent, in other words? God, I, I, don't, I don't know the answers to that. I'd love to know. <laughs> Sounds like a good theory, you know. Yeah, who knows? But it is interesting that it's only that that, that, that there are only five species that we know of that, that that do go through the menopause. It's humans and four species of toothed whale. Um, it's elephants don't. Elephants will keep reproducing all the way up until their sixties, which, when you consider they have a twenty-two month pregnancy is amazing, really, but they do. So they don't have the same decline that we do. Um, 
And that's all to do with, it's really complicated to do with the sort of social setup um, and, 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 and competition. But um, yeah, we are, it, it's, just us and, it's just us and the tooth whales, you know. <laughs> Excellent company to be in, I'd say. Yeah. Um, we've got a question up in the balcony there. Thank you for your talk. I want to ask two questions on the clownfish. Mm. One, can you tell us what, how you differentiate between the females and the males, as in, and what they look like when they're transitioning, and you talked about behaviour. And the second question is, if you were to re reintroduce the, the dominant female, do you then get the male fish who transitioned to a female re-transition back to a male? <laughs> well, that's a great question. And, you know, the thing is, it's not my research, and so I, because I... I, so I can't speak for Justin Rhodes, so I don't know. I, I don't think the female reverses, so I don't think that's the case. Um, and then what was the first? The first one was about. Oh, he he does it. He does it hormonally, so he he tests their hormones every day. So he's working out, um, and he's 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 screening them all the time. So, well, you catch it and you take its blood. <laughs> so that's that. So he does. He doesn't just do it by by sight. He, he, the behaviour is visible to the eye, because he, he said, because I was like, so he, he said, you know, the great thing about these fish is that you know, you know what what sex they think they are, or or, or what the other fish recognise them as because of their behaviour is really clear. So the females will fight with each other; they're really aggressive, and the males don't fight with each other. So if you put um, a, a male that's just started transitioning to a female with another female, then they'll start fighting with each other. And that's how he knows that they're recognised as a female and they're behaving as a female. But he's also testing their hormones all the time. And that's how he knows that their gonads are still um, making testosterone. I think of all the lab animals you can be, just getting your blood tested is fairly... That's fairly yeah. easy. I tell you what, though, with animals. the menopausal orcas, that was amazing, right? So, how do you um, test hormones in a you know t t six ton swimming pool torpedo with teeth, right? It's not easy to do. Go and be doing blood samples on a on a on an orca, let alone a menopausal orca, you know. Um, and so I went with this. You, you do it by catching that the, the, there's this woman who who follows the orcas around and catches their feces in a net um, because the hormones are in the feces, and so that way she can monitor the hormones. It's less invasive than, than taking blood samples all the time. And she's got this dog that she's, a rescue dog that she's trained to sniff out orca scat. This isn't made up. And the dog is a rescue dog from Sacramento uh, that sits at the front of her boat and then is there sniffing the air. And then when he smells an, an orca poo, then, then <laughs> like go off in that direction. I, like, I was there with a net trying to catch this stuff in a net. And um, yeah. Yeah, I can tell you that orca poo is uh, really smelly. But I tell you what is also really smelly is whale breath. Also really smelly, didn't know that. Yeah. We had Helen Chersky doing some lectures here a few years ago and she wanted to have some whale poo in her lectures and we didn't manage to get any, so then our demo team had to try and make a representation of whale poo. Which, oh, um, wow. Gosh, you really do. Yeah, I don't know that you do that sort of thing. <laughs> Only offered me whale poo, fake whale ask. poo. Yeah, I'm kind of going to do it all again it now. Was, um, if you ever want to make a replica of whale poo, we went for a kind of a mix of red and brown powdered paint. So then when it's sprinkled in the water, it kind of drifts down like um, 
like whale poo does. Yeah. We do all sorts of stuff here at the Royal Institution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a question with this gentleman here, and then we'll go up to the gallery and then down to this gentleman here. Hi, Lucy. I, I thought the speech was brilliant. Really, really good Thank and you. funny and clever and everything. And I really, really wished that my daughter had been here. Shall I do it all again uh, for her? Yes, for her. Yeah. Uh, because for years and years, she's uh, at the dinner table. I have been the uh, resident sexist and racist and <laughs> it's been, been unable to keep up with uh, society moving on and becoming more, uh, as they say, woke or whatever. But what my question to you is, what, do, what are we as humans supposed to do uh, with all this information you've given us? What does it mean for the sort of ideal human society? Do we become infinite, infinitely uh, uh, polygamous or, or understanding or woke or is it just around friendships? Or what on earth happens to the nuclear family which is supposed to be the core of a sort of stable human society? Well, I mean, I think the thing is, is, I think the thing is, you've got to be very careful about trying to um, take guidance from the animal kingdom of how humans should behave for a start. It's something we've done since the beasties. We're obsessed with looking at animals for moral guidance and how should we behave. You know, that's the point of showing you the chimpanzees and the bonobos is that, you know, who, who know, you know, that it, the, the, the point, you know, what, what, what I hope that all this shows is that, is that, the variety that exists, right? And so that it's not just females and not just passive, coy, monogamous, chaste. It's just this thing. There's all this variety. You know, what that then says about humans, take of it what you will. But I don't think that... Um, I think you can take inspiration and you can... You can but you can't sort of model yourself on, on, on different animals, really. You know, because so my big example about that was in my last book was actually about penguins. Because so March of the Penguins, everybody loved March of the Penguins so much, and that the penguins are like really great dads and everything like that. And then what you don't realise about penguins is that they're actually you know pathologically unpleasant necrophiliacs. They don't tell you that in the movie. Um, you know, so you know the thing is, it's like this. You know, all life lives in the animal kingdom. It's not it's not there for for, for moral guidance really. I think you have to sort of look inside for for that but um but i think what 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 it should tell us is is that that expand our eyes to what's um to the variation and what's 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 natural and what's possible hi um thank you for reclaiming the word bitch for the female <laughs> for females and um it's the, my question um it's it's sort of a bit of a, a naughty question but it's um you referred to uh, Bateman, was it Bateman chart, wasn't it? Was it Bateman Bateman's chart? paradigm, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just wondered if it was a Mr. Bateman or a Master Bateman. <laughs> <laughs> very good. I think that good. deserves a round of applause. Yeah, 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 very good. If only I had that when I was learning about that, like, ten years ago at university, I would have oh, killed God. it. <laughs> yeah, I know, how annoying. Um, yeah. Hello, I've got the mic up here, if that's okay. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. there we go. <laughs> You were wondering about the MGM lion. Yeah. That it's raw. I heard this on a podcast just the other day. Oh, really? Actually, that lion was dubbed. I'm not surprised it doesn't sound anything like any lion I've ever... was a tiger. Was it? And he doesn't get any credit. Brilliant. Okay, well, that solves that for me. Thank you very much. Excellent. So enchanted to learn there was a person called Lionel Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Everything's a lie. Yeah. Um, 
We've got a question up here? I wanted to know if there are any species that have gone from matriarchies to patriarchies. Uh, yeah, I mean, you do get... You, I mean, the thing, this thing is, is, you know, these, these systems are all really plastic and they do change, you know, according to, you know, different environmental situations. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if you did. It's not... That's what I mean. That, that's the thing is it's not fixed, you know, that... And so just different situations will mean that the optimum... Is, is to do something different, you know. So, yeah, I'm sure. I can't Can I ask one other one while I got yeah. when, when the mic? When the birds lay eggs from a number of different fathers, do they, lay, do they lay them all at the same time or do they lay them sequentially? How does that work? Um, they're, they're, they're sequential, aren't they? They're not all at the same time. Yeah, you know about bird egg laying. This is, yeah. Ten years ago. I think most <laughs> birds would lay one per day. Yeah. So then if they were mating with different males, there would then be a chance that, each subsequent egg was fathered by a different male. But there could be a slight chance that it could still be a male they'd mated with on a previous day. Um, sorry. Um, but again, so you mentioned pseudo-penises yeah. and scrotums and yeah. with the lemurs. But yeah. I know like, hyenas also have that. So, but then also both societies are matriarchal hierarchies. Mm. So does that have a link? Or like, what's the point of the pseudo-penis if not in use? Yeah, yeah. So, so well, that's that is a very good question. So, the pseudo penis, which is just such an awful terminology. Let's just let's all recognise that, shall we? The giant clitoris, as it should be known, is is, is a result of of um, exposure to um, androgens in in the womb at a certain point of development. So. Um, there are a number, it's, it's, it's actually not uncommon at all. It's not just hyenas, it's hyenas, lemurs, all the prosimians. Um, there, there's a whole bunch of mammals where you, where you find that. Um, moles, oh, I haven't talked about moles. This is amazing, garden moles. So garden moles, so it's really tough being a mole, living underground, um, got to dig for a living. Um, it's really hard work and got to eat a lot of worms because you've got to, pack, got to eat like 15% of your body weight in worms every single day. And amazing, they, they have their burrows are actually, they have like a worm larder. They have a designated worm room. Um, and, um, and, and the actual, the, 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 the tunnels are sort of like these sort of underground worm traps. But anyway, so the females digging, you know, it's, 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 it's a hard life. It's really dark. So they, evolution's given them a whole bunch of, of um, adaptations. So female, so moles can um, smell in stereo. So their, 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 their nostrils are, are, are wired differently so that they can, they can sense the direction of the worm even in the pitch dark. Um, they've got an extra thumb that's one of their wrist bones that's gotten off its own evolutionary path so they've got bigger hands to digging. But the most amazing thing about the female mole are her gonads because they are basically that she's got what's called ovotestes so half of her ovary half of her gonads are ovarian tissue that makes eggs and the other half is testicular tissue and during the breeding season the ovarian size um, produces eggs and but in the, outside of the short breeding season, the testicular tissue swells and is much bigger than the ovarian tissue. And that pumps out testosterone and makes her dig really hard. And she's also highly testosteronized, has a, a, a big clitoris that looks like a penis. And, and, and during the outside of her breeding season, her vagina seals up as well. So she's like... She's amazing, you know. So, that, I mean, there's a huge amount of, of, of variety, basically, in the animal kingdom. And, that, and, and you know, and, 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 and this idea that testosterone is an, is an exclusively male hormone is, is, is completely not true at all. And um, there are a lot of females that um, have, have a lot of testosterone in their system naturally.
So yes, we'll Hi, go for you. Thanks for the um, amazing talk. Um, I was struck by the um, by the slide you showed that had three different, I think, effectively monkeys of varying sorts, um, with a caption underneath each one of them, and it was sort of um, female dominant, collaborative, male dominant, you know, whatever. And it got me wondering. I'm just interested to know if one of those pictures had been um, a human family sitting down having a picnic instead of an owl monkey. What caption would you have put on it? Oh, it depends on the family, doesn't it? So I'd have to know them. <laughs> so why were you so confident putting a label on one particular photo of one particular set of animals? Oh, I mean, no, that's that is a really, really good point, which is that you know zoologists deal with averages, you know, and average behaviour, and and so individual variation is something that's much more being considered is, is being considered increasingly considered because. Exactly that. Of course, there's huge amounts of individual variation. And so, what would you have put on the humans? Oh, but I, so I, I, don't, I don't know what you put on the. <laughs> I, I, it's not my field, so I, I don't know. <laughs> but it's a very good question. So, just looking around the audience tonight, are there any other species where females and males voluntarily make themselves look different, like with different, like we have different clothing, different ways of wearing hair, to kind of label all but what we are almost. So, do any other species do that? Well, there's lots, of, there's lots of species where males and females are different. There's lots of species where males and females are identical. Um, they never try and differentiate themselves. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, you, I mean, the peacock's very different from the peahen. But not kind of voluntarily, I suppose, that's what I mean. Like, they've evolved to look different, but... Yeah, but they, they don't have consciousness in the same way that we do, so... I mean, you get the bower bird, for example, where the male um, creates an extraordinary bower that he creates that's this sort of you know, um, bejeweled nest that sort of, you could say, is an extension of his appearance. I'm looking at you. That, I'm was, looking, that, no, that was the one that popped into my head yeah, as well. <laughs> I, can't, I can't think. So, yeah, the bowerbird would be the only one I can read. I'm wondering if there are any... Are there some kind of crabs that like, yeah, attach there are, seaweed I think, there are, I think there are some crabs that attach seaweed. And but sort I, of I do, don't know if that's a, yeah. a sex thing or if both do that. Yeah, there might be a camouflage thing. Yeah. yeah. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for the brilliant talk. Following up on some of the other questions. So we've got lots of examples of sexual role variation, haven't we, in nature? And if you look mm -hmm. around human societies, you can see lots of different human societies, even within one species, where there are lots of different sex roles playing out. Do we know whether the biological changes such as the clownfish transitioning or such as, uh, you know, I don't know if there are other examples. Do we know if those things follow environmental change which leads to sex role changes? Or are we just looking at one point in evolution, you know, and we don't know which way everybody, which way, you know, all the species are going? If, if everybody changes their sex roles in the animal kingdom, do they then physically change to follow that? Or is it sort of nothing to do with it? Because you were saying that the, whether you've got a big gamete or a small gamete sort of has nothing to do with your sex roles. Uh, so you, the question is, do, does physical change follow behavioural change? I guess, yeah. yeah that would have been a quicker way to ask my yeah, question. Yeah, I guess it probably... I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does, yeah? And it would do, wouldn't it, in some cases? But, I mean, I don't know... I don't know. I'm sort of not sure about that. I... Yeah. That's maybe for Bitch Volume 2. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Fantastic. I think it's always good to end on a, an unknown. Yeah. Like, I think what we've, what we've learned tonight, right, is that this is just like the starting point of a complete reimagining. And really, I thought your point when you said that Darwin was looking through a pinhole and we're now seeing in Technicolor, I thought that really yeah. captured it. Like, 
there's so much amazing behavior and a huge amazing variety of stuff out there in the animal kingdom and the more variety of approaches and ways we look at it the more different types of people we have working in science yeah. the more we'll come up with interesting ways of studying behavior and understanding all this amazing stuff mm. um, and being inspired by it yeah yeah exactly um, I'd say another big fantastic round of applause for the fantastic Lucy Cook everybody thank you that's all for this month thanks for listening please leave us a rating and a review to let us know what you thought of this episode and if you want more like this head to rigb.org to book tickets for our upcoming events and live streams from more amazing speakers <laughs> <laughs>